Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico. And I'm your other co-host, Dean Delwaff. Dean, how's your heart? <laughs> are you protecting it? Are you keeping it safe from, you know, things that are going to get it? Yeah, of course. I keep it under lock and key. No one's getting into this sweet, <laughs> chaste heart of mine, for sure. <laughs> keep it under lock and key. It's uh, It's in the old safe that some people call an abdomen yeah it makes it hard for jesus to get in but he knows how to he knows that the key is hidden under the rock <laughs> let's see the rack of your chest is like your belly button i don't know i got this <laughs> metaphor is lost on me uh yeah how's your heart matt you know uh strangely warmed in sort of a wesleyan sense uh <laughs> the thing that i've been paying a lot of attention to this week is that um uh, let's see alex jones is getting sued um, That's right. Because he uh, has said for years, for like 10 plus years, that Sandy Hook, uh, the, sh- the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School, uh, was a false flag by the government. And uh, the parents are suing him and uh, he's already lost the lawsuit. And now it's just up to like damages. And uh, I think he he actually got like fined, I think, like four million dollars or something tonight. And I think that's awesome. I think that's <laughs> great. Um, uh, I love that. I love to see somebody I don't like have a bad thing happen to them. And that's not a very Christian thing to say, but uh, we're all fallen in our awful human nature. But I, I do don't know. Seeing... I've, I've read a few Psalms that, that lean in that direction. Uh, yeah, that's true. It's, as far as the Psalms go, it's like that's pretty much pretty mild, I think. So <laughs> yeah, he should be happy about that. I agree. Um, I saw. Yeah, the four million dollars is like the first bit, too, because there's supposed to be like punitive costs coming. But my favorite thing of the Alex Jones saga was uh, this is not a podcast about Alex Jones, I guess. But now that we're into it, <laughs> there was a great moment where apparently Alex Jones's lawyers arbitrarily and accidentally sent all the text records like phone records of Alex yeah. Jones to the court and to the defense lawyers. And I think that is extremely funny. Like, they were not mandated to do it. They were just, I don't know, not smart. And I think that's great. It's a classic, like, Arrested Development, um, yeah. <laughs> Barry <laughs> lawyer kind of situation for sure. Okay, I know this is not a podcast. As long as I keep saying this is not a podcast about Alex Jones, it's, it's not. fine. Yeah. But I do have to tell you about my favorite part. And it's, a, it's one that's flown under the radar a little bit for people. Um, so during the trial... <laughs> uh the uh the the lawyer was like okay alex jones did you um did you recently have uh did you recently broadcast a picture of the judge that is trying this case on fire and alex jones like no 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 i didn't do that and then like two seconds later they show a picture (laughs) that's like it's a photo of like the judge and fire is like sort of superimposed over (laughs) that's awesome yeah he also he I think what's even bonkers, like more bonkers about the whole thing, though, is that he's been still doing his show like when he's not been in the courtroom mm-hmm. and just saying the most like heinous things. Like he called the judge a tr- like a goblin and <laughs> like you got to know that she's going to listen or, or figure this out. Like, you know, you shouldn't do that. That's great. I love it. Um, no good luck to Alex Jones, but uh, I do look forward to hearing about the punitive damages. You know, I'm, I'm an abolitionist for sure, but he's probably not going to go to jail. So whatever. Just uh, yeah, <laughs> bleed, him, bleed him dry monetarily. That sounds pretty good. Um, yeah. All right. It's not an Alex Jones podcast. And guess what? I'm about to prove it by talking about what this episode is actually about. Uh, two weeks on the podcast, two weeks ago, that is, we started filling in a bit of a gap in our knowledge about liberation theology by looking at a really neat book by Emmanuel Marti called African Theology that dealt a lot with liberation theology in Africa and uh, theology elsewhere in the continent and kind of thinking through what's different and unique about all of that. And this week, we're getting back into it by reading a few essays from a really interesting theologian named John Mark Illa in a book called African Cry. Uh, Illa is a character who came up in the uh, African theology book and a really interesting guy for a lot of reasons. And um, yeah, just made us want to dive into one of these people, you know, instead of just reading the survey, trying to get into some of the details. Um, Maybe I'll set up a little bit about it. And then, uh, Matt, you could tell us about the the uh, essays that we pulled out here. Yeah, um, sure. So Ila, really fascinating guy. He's from Cameroon. Uh, he was a Catholic priest and also a sociologist. And the book African Cry is interesting because it collects these different kind of occasional addresses or um, texts that he had written. 
And Ila is fascinating in the continent because many African theologians outside of South Africa were not, I mean, it's not that they weren't liberation theologians, I guess, but they were, they were just doing something different. We talked about that on the other episode, so you can listen to that. Uh, but Ila was interested in liberation theology and intentionally read all kinds of stuff coming out of uh, Latin America and for lots of interesting reasons. And so he has kind of a unique voice, really attentive to socioeconomic issues. That was a, a huge piece and often urging other theologians to get invested in a critique of capitalism. So this book uh, is sort of comes out of uh, that work, really, of being a priest and doing mission work in particular with peasant farmers in a, a northern region in Cameroon. And uh, his life is also very interesting. So in addition to all this political and theological work, he eventually moved to Quebec following the assassination of another Cameroonian liberation theologian, a Jesuit priest named Engelbart Mveng in uh, 1995. Uh, Veng was also like a you know, one of these sort of liberation theologian folks. And so uh, Ela moved to Canada because he had heard that he was kind of next um, to be assassinated. So he became a really influential voice in third world theology. He had a a huge impact on the Cameroonian philosopher Ashilu Mbembe, who's a pretty heavy hitter in terms of like decolonization literature these days. Um, Mbembe wrote an obituary about Ela after his death. So I guess all this is to say... Just trying to establish that he is a, a really interesting person, but somebody that I had never heard of um, until I started reading more about African theology. And I think that is really interesting. I mean, as I always say, that probably reflects more about my own position than the state of the field or whatever. I never went to theology school, so who, know, who knows how important this guy is in those conversations. But, you know, as a person who reads a lot of liberation theology, I was really kind of surprised to find that I hadn't come across his work and also uh, have found it really fun to sort of figure out the the analogies he's drawing between his work with peasants in, in Africa and the work of, for example, Paulo Freire in Brazil. So lots of really neat stuff going on in, in Eli's thought and life. Yeah, totally. Um, not only is he an interesting Cameroonian liberation theolo- theologian, he's just an interesting theologian, I think, in general. He has some really cool things to say um, that I think, I don't know, benefit people to read. That's all I'm trying to say. Read this guy's book. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I'm trying to say on this podcast to read this guy's book and that's it. Um, so uh, take my own advice. We are doing that in this episode. Uh, like Dean said, it's kind of like a collection of essays and some like shorter pieces. Um, and because of that, it's a really like manageable book to kind of start reading and pick up and put down. Um, I don't know if you're like me, but I read, I read things and I watch things on dad time, which means I can read things for about 15 minutes before somebody needs something from me. And by someone, I mean, my child (laughs) or my dog, I guess both pretty needy people. Um, but that's okay. Anyways. So, uh, like I said, an easy book to pick up and put down. So uh, in this episode, we're going to focus on a couple of essays in the book. Uh, the first essay is about how the Eucharist is a kind of controversial topic in Africa because the elements themselves are a sign of imperialism. And it's a cool essay, probably the most exciting one, um, of the two. I really like it a lot. Uh, the second essay is a bit more theological and focuses on an African reading of the Exodus story and how it should orient uh, liberation theology towards like uh, doing something and how uh, we can understand God and history and all these kind of cool topics. It's good stuff all the way through, I gotta say. I like it a lot. Um, there are a bunch of other interesting essays in the collection, uh, including one engaging Fanon and the problem of violence and decolonization. So you can definitely check out that if you're into this book. Um, who knows in the future, we might also talk about it. I would like to, so just saying, just saying, just putting that out there. Um, most of the essays are, are trying to like, think about the, think about the problems of like the universal ambitions of Christianity and how it's, you know, supposed to be a religion for, you know, everybody, regardless of geography and also the particular impositions of European imperialism. Um, it, it, I, you know, I've always known that those things are true. Um, but I think this text really draws out those problems like really starkly. Um, so it's cool. Um, and it, it also contributes some some new ideas about like what might make, you know, African Christianity unique and, and so on. So there's a lot of cool things that um, as a white person in the United States, I never have thought of. And now I'm glad that I have read them for sure. So I recommend this book 10 out of 10. Um, <laughs> it's a cool one. <laughs> It is a cool one. Uh, Before we get into it, it might be good to set a little bit of context here. 
Um, I think it's it's difficult to read African theology in particular if you're a person in North America, because I think if you get into liberation theology generally, you know, you're as I was just saying, you're, you're probably reading people from Latin America on the whole and maybe occasionally someone from Asia. And I think there are obvious geographical reasons for that. Right. Uh, this region of the world is closer. There's also other reasons too. There's more English translations. Things are more widely available. The The social movements are different. The demographics are, are different. Um, as we said in the last episode too, uh, Africa, especially at the time of these kinds of writings, was not a um, uh, primarily Christian kind of region in the world, demographically speaking, as opposed to Latin America, which is a primarily Christian demographic, right? Or like a place like the Philippines or whatever. So all that to say, there's a big, um, well, there are a lot of reasons why we might not maybe focus as much on the history of Africa or the theology that comes out of it. So uh, one thing that I always find really interesting or something I found really kind of surprising when I was first learning about the history of colonization and globalization and so on is that Africa is a place that was colonized actually very late and in a really transparent way. <laughs> like, colonization is always transparent more than we like to think. I mean, you can go find a handful of documents of people saying, we're going to go take that stuff and do whatever we want with it, and that's that, right? Like, that's the weird thing about colonization. It's, it's not that subtle. Um, but in Africa, it's even more maybe uh, obvious. So the slave trade obviously is a huge piece of the way in which Europeans um, interacted with Africa and, and uh, changed the shape of it and so on. But the full kind of geographical like Europeans coming into Africa and really taking over huge kind of parts of it and ruling it directly um, that didn't happen until much later. So in particular, if you really want to go down a rabbit hole, you can look up this thing called the Berlin Conference. It has a bunch of other names too, but it was in the late 1800s and 84, 85-ish. And at that conference, basically a handful of European powers got together in Berlin and divided up Africa amongst themselves. So they were like, the French get this part, the Germans get that part, uh, all this kind of uh, stuff, right? Really bizarre, <laughs> kind of strange. Um, a bunch of people just looking at a map and saying, that's where Europe gets to rule. And they went out and did it. Uh, nearly all of Africa was under European control by the early 1900s. A um, few exceptions, places like Ethiopia or, um, yeah, uh, Liberia and stuff like that. Really interesting stuff happening there. But all that to say, uh, Europe had this very kind of obvious colonial movement and uh, and it was a, a late kind of movement. So you get that. I, I said all that sage because Ila is, is really writing with that kind of in the background. Like this book comes out in the 80s. So it's only really been about like 100 years since that happens, that kind of effort. Um the other interesting thing is, like, Ila is uh, a Francophone um, theologian, so speaking and writing in French, and that is very interesting as well, because uh, Cameroon was ruled by the French and then by the Germans, and uh, that's also why he ended up moving to Quebec, because there's, like, a French connection there. So all that to say, the more you learn about Africa, the more you learn about lots of other things, too. And I think it's kind of neat to sort of at least like situate the theology in, against that backdrop, right? Just to sort of open up a little bit more about what's going on in the text. Yeah, that is really important. <laughs> you know, in uh, uh, the Treaty of Tordesilla, which is uh, that's like the Doctrine of Discovery kind of treaty where the the Pope uh, said this part of uh, North and South America belong to, you know, the Spanish. This part belongs to the Portuguese. Uh, that happened in 1494, and this is in 1884. So you can see what the uh, the long <laughs> the long history of rationalism and like <laughs> um, empiricism and sort of like uh, uh, continental philosophy has got gotten you. Still, uh, just imperialism. Yeah, exactly. It's good to just have that background anyway, and uh, figure out you know where is all this coming from, as we'll talk about in a moment. Where are all these concerns about what it means to have kind of a uniquely African church coming from? Um, you know colonization direct colonization happens late as Ella points out that means the missions are also coming alongside that colonial process so lots of questions about it um one kind of quote that might just help us set the stage this comes from an essay that we won't talk about in detail but is really good called the right to be different um it's all about whether or not 
Africans have a right to a kind of African expression of Catholicism in particular. Uh, Ela is very invested in the project of like Vatican II and trying to sort of radicalize that demand to like make Catholicism local and regional in particular in an important way. So uh, I think this is a neat quote that sort of sets up like why, at least why I've found the book super helpful. So he says, it would be a mistake to compare the petitions of the African pastoral ministry to the demands of the European protest movements. The church ought to listen to questions addressed to its center by non-European cultural traditions, for such questions may constitute the essential contribution to the very future of the church. An encounter with new worlds is indispensable to the church. It is the only way for it to discover its own truth. The church should welcome the questions that come to it from Africa, for they oblige it to review all of its relationships with other practices and other disciplines. In short, we must liberate the Church of Africa from a doctrinaire rigidity in the matter of discipline and take the risk of transformations that are incumbent upon us in the area of law. And I, I really like that because uh, what Ila is pointing out here, right, is that by really attending to these concerns about the particularities of African theology and the, the problems of identifying that universal dream of European Christianity with Europe <laughs> in particular, um, that's really the only way we're going to be able to think about a future of the church is by trying to um, decenter or kind of offset or, or disentangle the, the European kind of dominating impulse from uh, Christianity as a whole. And I think there's probably lots more to say about that. I mean, we've talked about universalism a lot on the show, uh, but uh, all that to say, I, I think Eli's probably right. <laughs> the, uh, the questions that come from Africa or from the global south more generally, um, that's where you're going to find the, the future of the church if there is one. Yeah, totally. Um, I think that's a, that's a great quote to kind of start us off with. And maybe let's now we can kind of like uh, prove it, <laughs> I think, or maybe explain why um, why that's the case, that like the, the universalism of uh, European Christianity is not a good fit for Africa. Um, or at least it's very complicated, to say the least. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I don't have a dog in this fight not being Catholic, but I am definitely on the side of Ella in this, right? <laughs> I think it's easy to see like maybe some big problems. Um, okay, so the first essay we're going to talk through really quickly here, um, it's not like a very long essay, only a few pages. It's called Eucharist and African Churches. Um, so I want to quickly set up the problem. Uh, there are two big problems with Eucharist as it uh, presents itself in African churches, according to Ella. Uh, this is, uh, I probably should say, um, this book was put together in 1986. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't know how it holds up. I mean, I think it, it's probably different. <laughs> the context wise, uh, this is, you know, more than, I don't know, 30 years ago. <laughs> so, um, I'm sure there's some pretty big changes, but this is the problem at the time. And I guess you could probably see how these things would have lasting effects if nothing else. So, uh, there are some problems with the Eucharist, uh, uh, Jean-Marc Illa tells us. Uh, so he writes this, to celebrate the Eucharist is to say yes to a death to self. The words of the Eucharistic minister are not enough. The death and resurrection of the church renders these words effective inasmuch as Jesus calls not only the apostles to redo his gestures and re-say his words in the church's liturgy, but the ensemble of the people of God as well, who share in the ministry of Christ in the Spirit. But, in this essential action, in which the whole faith of the church is at stake, African Christians experience salvation in Jesus Christ in a situation of dependence to which we have perhaps not sufficiently adverted. Okay, so there are two big problems here, and he hasn't laid them out quite yet, but he sets up this uh, this dynamic, right, where African Christians are in somehow dependent um, uh, in, in this process of Eucharist. And uh, I'll say them kind of right at the top, uh, and I'll, I'll read his words uh, explicitly here. But the two problems are that uh, on the one hand, there's not enough indigenous clergy to actually like, you know, distribute the Eucharist because that's a thing. Uh, right, Dean, in, in the Catholic Church, you have to be a, a priest particularly to, to right. hand out those great little crackers. To uh, at least uh, consecrate them. You can hand them out if you're not a priest, but you can't uh, get them without one. Cool. I think it's like that in the Episcopal Church, too, but I couldn't be bothered to know for sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyways, yeah, so that's the first problem. Not enough indigenous clergy. So they're always depending on, um, you know, uh, foreign clergy to come and, and do that part, which is, you know, um, bad optics as 
you might say. Uh, and the second problem is that the the actual elements themselves are kind of complicated. Um, wine and and bread in particular are uh, you know uh, w- wine in particular I think mostly. I mean bread can be different, but uh, wine has to be kind of like brought in from a different place, which is uh, you know alienating. <laughs> uh, something Eva does in this uh, in this SIT that I like is he goes through and talks about like you know what are the um, what are the elements like of like African culture that would actually make sense? Like he talks about millet and uh, which is a grain that uh, people farm there. Well, it's also a reminder of uh, imperialism as well, because it's like, you know, subsistence farming is done with millet. And then like uh, they see the, the big tractors of um, multinational corporations come in and, and, you know, farm other things. Um, and he also talks about like you know, a particular type of beer and stuff like that. So, anyways, all that's say that you know the elements of the Eucharist are different. Um, well, the elements of the Eucharist uh, are sort of alienating in that way. Okay, so let's start with the indigenous clergy stuff here. Um, so he says, on the one hand, the absence of an indigenous clergy renders recourse to better equipped churches indispensable, without any guarantee that one's need will be completely satisfied in view of the difficulties of recruitment that these churches themselves must face. On the other hand, as no African diocese can afford to pay for the training of its priests, it must wait for help from without to gather the huge sums required for the construction and maintenance of seminaries. The dangers our communities face because of the importation of human and financial resources for their survival is obvious. After more than 100 years of existence, the churches of Africa can function only because of massive presence of a clergy neither selected nor drawn by from the indigenous population. Um, so this is the this is what's at stake here. Um, you have uh, you know these like communities that are too poor to buy, build their own seminaries, which means that there are not many indigenous clergy. And then uh, in response, you have um, you know the reliance on um, you know the church abroad from Europe. Um, and also clergy from abroad from Europe. So I, I mean, it's not hard to see how, you know, kind of bonkers this is and and how explicitly alienating it could be to be a person in those types of faith communities. Yeah, I mean, there are so many issues involved in this. I think one thing I really like about Eli is that when he talks about the Eucharist, he's really trying to understand it, um, not only theologically, I mean, he pulls out the theological stuff, but also in a, a functional sense, and he tries to locate the Eucharist in actual material reality, yeah. right? What are the what are the material relationships that make the sacrament possible at all? And that is such a helpful thing. I mean, there's a bit of a trend in especially U.S. and even, I think, Canadian theology, uh, progressive kind of theologies, to see the Eucharist as a, a bit, a bit of like how to put it, like political magic. <laughs> like if you take the Eucharist, um, there's this profound moment, uh, this profound transformation that happens automatically that it it binds people together. So you get this said in stronger or weaker ways. Um, people like William Kavanaugh are really into it. There was kind of a big trend in like the mid 2000s, I guess, where the Eucharist was politics, basically, right? These are the same things. And what I think is really helpful about Ela's uh, presentation here is that the Eucharist is actually bound up in a lot of complicated politics already. Like, it's not that simple. And in fact, the way we participate in it might uh, further kind of re-entrench imperialist habits. And we'll maybe talk more about that in a minute. Um, the other piece that's really fascinating here, talking about indigenous clergy. So we have Ila pointing out the, the challenges right there, that there's no, uh, the material means by which you could get indigenous clergy through this really rigorous education system, the seminaries and so on that's not going to be raised from within Africa itself. And so that creates all these problems of dependency. Um, But as he says, kind of later on in this quote, uh, he says in forest villages, hundreds of kilometers from the central mission station, it's possible to have the Eucharist only when the priest comes. And what that means is essentially people get it very often because the priest doesn't usually travel hundreds of kilometers uh, from the central mission station. And this is a perennial problem for Catholics in the global South um, historically, it has been an issue in Catholicism uh, more generally. Um, I don't know. The, the history of the Eucharist is complicated. Uh, sometimes it's more and less kind of significant to Catholic life, even in medieval Europe, for example. But, uh, you know, today, like 
speaking for myself, it would be very hard to imagine my own Catholic life without taking the Eucharist at Mass whenever I go. Like, it's just a given. That's what, that's why I go. <laughs> that's, you go because you got to eat God. you got to eat Jesus. What a great thing to do. Um, but uh, if you don't have access to a priest, you, you can't, in Catholic theology, do that. And it's a, an issue that is still a logistical challenge. Um, for example, in the Amazon Synod that happened recently in the Catholic Church, this was a huge sticking point. Uh, the question was, what do we do if there are all these Amazon communities, which are very remote, who are Catholic, uh, but nevertheless can never, ever receive the sacrament or, you know, sometimes go years without receiving the sacrament, the Eucharist, because there's no priest coming and there are no Eucharistic ministers coming to deliver the Eucharist either. So the question is, like, functionally, what really makes that community Catholic? Like, <laughs> it's a, a really live question. So, you know, it's a question that we still have to deal with today. And I think it's interesting that Ayla is trying to do, do both these things, right? To sort of say, okay, if theologically we think it's really significant to participate in the sacrament, then why are we kind of accepting all these material barriers and not really like digging into, you know, what, what makes them problems? Yeah, for sure. I want to go back to something you said a minute ago that I think is really interesting. That is really striking me. <laughs> you mentioned a minute ago, William Kavanaugh, and there's like this whole trend of, um, uh, you know, global North, uh, theologians who think that, uh, Eucharist is like a really radical thing. And, um, I think there's something really like, cool about that way of thinking honestly like I, I don't know um you go to church you, you eat god it's great and we all love it and uh isn't that the isn't that a cool few, like type of economy that only christianity can kind of make up or something and there's something really radical about that and there's I, I don't know those arguments are interesting um they have i think some serious dead ends <laughs> in them as well politically but i think it is interesting how this is uh this is similar in the sense that it's like a real politicization of eucharist but in the opposite direction where it's like not a reminder of a cool economy of god where you get fed at church for free or whatever but it's uh you know a reminder of exploitation and it's a reminder of imperialism huh makes it makes you think <laughs> yeah it does. And I think it just goes back to even to that quote that we opened the episode with, right, that uh, the church has to listen to these questions that are addressed to the center by these non-European cultural traditions, right? That That's the future of the church. So instead of, I guess, fixating on our own questions, which is like, why do we even go to church? That's the question, I think, in the global north, um, which gets answered by saying, oh, the church is this kind of like radical alternative political space automatically on its own. Uh, the question that's asked in the Global South is like, well, what kind of dangerous uh, structures are getting reproduced by going to church? And I think that is a huge question. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, when it comes to Eucharist, if you think about it, Protestants have gotten away with a lot of stuff with Eucharist, like some <laughs> like, you know, the whole the youth group uh, Mountain Dew and Dorito Eucharist. I feel like, you know, if Protestants can do that, I think the Catholic Church can kind of figure this one out. You'd be surprised. I would be. I would be surprised. You're right. <laughs> you know, this is a really in the weeds thing, but um, I always laugh about it. So my wife is gluten free and uh, that like, I don't know, she's not Catholic, but occasionally she comes to mass or like whatever, we'll be at a different church or something. And it's like, does she doesn't she take the Eucharist, the communion? It's a it's always a roll of the dice. Um, and, uh, we were talking one time about it and, you know, like, because she's gluten-free, she wouldn't eat a glutinous host. Um, and I did some reading about it to be like, oh, I don't know, are there, can you go to like a church and get a gluten-free host? And you better believe there, it, man. this was a question. Well, it was a question posed to Pope Benedict and Pope Benedict said, nope, we can't have a gluten-free host. It's extremely important, extremely essential that there's gluten in the host. So there's a handful of uh, women religious who make a specific kind of host that is like trace amounts of gluten, basically. Um, but uh, it is essential that there is some gluten in the host. That's that's Catholic theology for you. In the wildly liberal and, and extremely out there Episcopal church, uh, you can get a, a gluten free <laughs> wafer. And it's I'm sure it's great. I would never. But uh, I'm sure it's great. Yeah, yeah, you would never because you follow the true kind of uh, words of Pope Benedict. <laughs> That's right. I love Pope Benedict and his great words, and I also love gluten, so uh, I can't get enough of the stuff. I'm always crazy about it. All right. Um, let's talk more about uh, imperialism, though. 
So um, this is Ayla talking more about sort of like the indigenous uh, clergy problem and kind of expressing some of the things that Dean said, but uh, in a, in these are his words, not Dean's, and that's what's really important here. Uh, so Ayla says, <laughs> we experience absurd situations in the churches of Africa. The minister who summons a community to hear the word is not authorized to preside the Eucharist by which Christians are nourished by the power of the cross. In current practice, ministry of the word and ministry of the Eucharist are disassociated in the name of dogmatized practice that reserves the presidency of the Eucharist to a priestly class. Okay, so you can see how this is like a pretty bad look, right? <laughs> that you have to have uh, a different guy show up to do it. Um, one person can preach, but uh, they can't also uh, preside over the Eucharist. Uh, that's not great. Okay, but it's also even, uh, I mean, not more interesting. It's... I don't know. It's an, it, it continues to be interesting in a, in a great way. <laughs> uh, so he says, thus the church of Africa is forced to turn to the outside to hire the priests that its seminaries fail to provide in its sufficient numbers. Um, and then he says, and so the Eucharist in the life of the church has become the locus of our daily alienation. The right that we follow has not been of our own choosing and it bears the mark of a culture, not ours. Man, it's a it's such a, a bizarre thing um, to think about in that context, right? Like because of um, the way you know, wine is is just not there, and the bread is different, and sort of like different crops and different cultural aspects. It's just not something I would have thought about before this, and now I'm thinking about it, and I don't like it. Yeah, uh, lots of things. I mean, we'll talk about the uh, the elements in a minute and how weird they are. Um, I think uh, one thing that's also fascinating about this passage. So if you're a Catholic who is really invested in being a Catholic, um, hearing what you just read, Matt, is like awful. <laughs> very bad. Um, very bad because uh, it's a really important feature of Catholicism that the priest specifically is the one who, um, you know, presides over the, the ministry of the Eucharist. And it's actually important, too, that the ministry of the word and the ministry of the Eucharist are disassociated. That's like a, I don't know, significant feature of Catholicism. And uh, there's lots of very boring reasons for it that I am not even qualified to really probably explain very well. But uh, what I think is significant here is Eli himself is a priest, Right. Like, yeah, <laughs> he is part of the priestly class. Um, he is a guy who is seminary educated, a guy who can actually preside over the ministry of the Eucharist and is nevertheless kind of identifying these uh, uh, dynamics at the heart of the at least the function of the sacrament. And it's this kind of thing that I think is so fascinating about liberation theology in general. Um, it's the kind of thing that will also get Ela uh, in trouble with the Vatican. And he did get in trouble with the Vatican. Um, importantly, he was not uh, invited to a handful of theological discussions. Um, and, you know, the, I think like, this is definitely one of those cases where Eli is like provoking a fight. <laughs> like mm -hmm. he's, he's looking to piss some people off and maybe like, I don't know if you're extremely concerned about those kind of nitty gritty things about Catholic sacramentalism, there's probably like a, a conversation to be had about it. But I think what's at least, uh, regardless of like how somebody feels about that piece, what's at least really useful about it is Eli is calling attention to whether or not even those who are committed to like that kind of way of doing the Eucharist mm. where the priest is the only one who can do it. Like, well, what else does that commit us to? Because the church is not training indigenous priests who are capable of, of doing the sacrament anyway. And so in a situation like that, like, what are we supposed to do? And as I said, that's a question that is still kind of uh, keeping the church up at night, <laughs> keeping them busy at synods and so on. So uh, it's an interesting problem, at least to keep pointing out. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's uh, let's continue pointing it out here on this podcast by talking about the elements uh, in particular. Uh, Dean, let's see. At a Catholic church, I don't, I've never taken communion at a Catholic church because I'm not allowed. Uh, but let's see. You, you drink <laughs> some some wine from the cup and you get a little cracker. Yeah. That's right. Although in my diocese, usually it's just the cracker, no wine. Oh yeah. Well, that's how I think that's how things that's how things are, are in my uh, Episcopal church as well because of COVID. We used to, that was this way before COVID actually in, really? in Toronto, but uh, because you only technically need one species of the Eucharist to make it valid or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like when I was a kid, we did both in Michigan, but yeah, in Toronto, as long as I've been here, it's always been just the uh, just the bread. Oh, great. Well, that's cool. Um, I'm a huge fan when you go to a church though, and they have real bread. I think that's great. 
Yeah. <laughs> That's the most fun. I used to go to this church and they had a big Hawaiian roll every week. And uh, it, oh, that rolls. Yeah, it was really uh, it was a really fun one. Anyways, um, I love it is what I'm trying to say. But let me tell you about how it could not be great <laughs> in a different sense. <laughs> uh, so Ayla says, how is bread to be the fruit of the earth and the work of human hands in a socioeconomic context where raising millet so deeply market so deeply marks the life of the mountaineers in North Cameroon? Who have learned to cultivate the very crags in order to survive? Why should the church ignore the joys and tribulations of the Kirti to live in solidarity with the peasants of Europe alone? Um, some great questions. He goes on to say then, some find it surprising that Christians could be allowed to believe that the use of millet bread and nut beer raises no difficulty. Have they forgotten difficulties confronting communities when their expensive imported wine runs out and can only be purchased in some faraway place? When all is said and done, what answer can be made to people who ask, why say mass with those little white things when millet means so much to us? The extent of the church's ties with the cultivation of wheat and grapes is evident when one learns that local foodstuffs are not authorized to celebrate the Eucharist. Um, this is making me think a lot of, I mean, first of all, some great questions. Um, I think those are uh, good que questions for the Catholic Church to wrestle with, and I'm going to definitely kind of like figure this out. I want to know what's happened in Africa since this book was written. Um, <laughs> but anyways, I was thinking uh, back to the conversation we had two weeks ago when we were reading the other book um, uh, about uh, like South African theology and, and this conversation between, you know, liberation theology on the one hand and then also like enculturation theology about, you know, the theology that makes something like explicitly African or something. And uh, I think when we read that book, I was like, <laughs> I mean, I was trying to see both sides of the argument because uh, that's what you should do. But anyways, the enculturation part makes a lot more sense, I think, given like the the ways that um, – I don't know how how stark these like uh, symbols are and like not just symbols, I guess, but how stark the materiality is, too, about like uh, something as simple but fundamental as, uh, you know, taking the Eucharist. For sure. And one maybe interesting piece about that as well. So for folks who didn't listen to that episode, uh, one thing that Marty points out is that there's there's these kind of two broad schools of thought in Africa. There's black liberation theology that happens mostly in South Africa. And then there's enculturation theology elsewhere in Africa, which is more concerned with kind of like in a decolonized situation. How does one uh, think about how to do church as an African? And you might think that Ila is really naturally in the enculturation side, but actually um, he takes a lot of issues with that kind of tradition. He's he's sort of exceptional. Mm -hmm. um, he sees himself as a liberation theologian um, as opposed to uh, this other kind of trend. And in fact, in a couple other essays in this book, he really actually lays out very explicitly why he does not like that trend. Um, but nevertheless, you can see how he's obviously like very interested in that enculturation piece in a, a general way, right? Like, what does it mean to think about uh, being an African Catholic in Africa? Uh, and I think that's a really unique kind of contribution of the book. Um, you get some of that even in Latin American liberation theology, but there too, I think, I mean, with some exceptions, a lot of the time what what it looks like to be a Catholic in Latin America is like not actually that um, how to put it like these kinds of questions are, are not raised in the same way uh, or, or not as explicitly um, like I said some important uh, exceptions for sure but on the whole like you when you read Gustavo Gutierrez you're not going to find the same kind of uh, questions coming out in like a theology of liberation uh, so I think that is really useful. Um, the other kind of feature of it is when you think about the the sacraments and kind of the material stuff underneath it, uh, from that anti-imperialist perspective, it also, again, maybe poses that good question to the sort of um, Eucharistic-centric politics that we get in the global north. So, for example, Ila goes on to say in this essay, uh, the case of the Eucharist reveals the domination at the heart of the faith as lived in Africa within a Christianity that refuses to become incarnate in our people. The question does not pertain to dogma, but is a matter of pure discipline to refuse to allow the celebration of the Eucharist using grains other than wheat in regions where wheat is not grown is to condemn communities to celebrate salvation in Jesus Christ in dependency on Mediterranean culture. 
The foreignness of the products imposed upon us is all the more striking in the view of the fact that they are not generally specified in, in the Eucharistic prayer. Here, as elsewhere, the African church speaks a kind of Christian Creole. So just to, you know, <laughs> I guess it's like if the Eucharist can be seen as a kind of um, ultimate political locus or home in the global north, I think that's because it reflects a kind of privilege that we have, right? Like, of course, we see it that way because it's practiced in a Eurocentric way. <laughs> so naturally, it feels comfortable or at home or this kind of rooting traditional, whatever it might be, like all that kind of power is, is found there maybe in our, our cultural like DNA. Uh, but it's precisely the opposite in a, a place colonized by Europe, right? It's the sign of domination still, even in its kind of functional sense. So, uh, yeah, um, just a, a really important way of posing that question. Uh, Dean, we don't have enough time to talk about the second essay. Right. <laughs> okay. In light of that, then, let me keep talking about Eucharist a little bit more. Um, sure. All right. Well, let's, let's make an official executive decision. We made a promise at the beginning. We were talking about two essays out of several in this book, but guess what? We're not. Uh, we're just talking about the one, and maybe, maybe we'll come back to it. Um, yeah, and uh, let's see. Hang on. Let's make sure this is democratic, though, Dean. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast and you want to hear us talk about uh, the Eucharist even longer... Uh, you can uh, you can text uh, yes to Eucharist to seven 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 and uh, <laughs> oh look all the votes came in and we're gonna do it great uh, I'm really glad um, you know the thing that's really interesting about this sorry this is a hard a hard pivot back in the conversation now um, <laughs> the thing that's interesting about this though is like defining uh, liberation theology as like a genre even um, and you know this essay about Eucharist is not something you know, like formally or thematically that's necessarily screaming liberation theology in your face. Like, you know, in, in Latin American liberation theology, um, you get all kinds of things about how, you know, God's on the side of the poor and like, you know, interpretations of Bible verses that are about rich people and poor people. And, and, and that's, that's in other essays for sure. Right. Like th those things are there, but this is interesting because it's like radical in a different sort of way. Um, it's radical in the sense that, it's kind of throwing like the biggest fulcrum <laughs> within the church. Like it's kind of like tipping it in a different direction um, and really kind of calling uh, some big shots against it. And I don't know, I think that's pretty cool. It is extremely radical because it, you know, questions the entire like legitimacy of uh, European hegemony within Christianity. Um, I'm definitely here for that. It's a really fascinating thing to see somebody argue who is, who is actively a priest. Uh, very cool. Yeah, I think maybe that's the most interesting thing to me about this whole argument is that Ila, like, he could just be a Protestant. I don't know. There's Protestants in Africa. It's fine. Um, and he chooses not to be, right? He's What he's really trying to do is challenge the Catholic tradition to say, well, Catholic means universal. And what does that mean? Uh, he, elsewhere in this book, sort of talks about the the weirdness of that term, universality, right? Like, uh, I forget the exact quote, but he says something like um, the universality of Christianity is sort of what sets Europeans on the path to like assuming that what they're doing is the universal, like what their, you know, their way of life, their assumptions about civilization and so on. All that is kind of coterminous with the universal mission of Christianity. And he says, well, when you're in Africa, if you're really trying to be a Catholic, really trying to invest in the universal church. Um, that means taking seriously actually the particularity of what it means to be an African Christian. Uh, and he, he often gestures towards others too. Like he has a, you know, he was a participant in, in Eat Wat in the kind of global conversation around third world theology. Um, he points toward like, it, can there be an Asian Catholic in a significant way? Like, is that something we can talk about? And this, too, I think, is something that Pope Francis has tried to open a space for in ways that, I don't know, it's it's sort of like in fits and starts. It's it's limping along a little bit. Um, there have been some openings in the Amazon Synod, for sure. Uh, other kinds of features, like Pope Francis has named more... Um, people to people like bishops or cardinals, I guess, cardinals who are eligible to vote for the Pope uh, from the global South than ever before. Right. There's there's kind of structural changes happening in the church that might reflect uh, that perhaps there is room to ask those questions now in a way that wasn't as evident as before. But at the same time, um, if you read really closely something like Pope Francis's uh, exhortation after the Amazon Synod, Carita Am Amazonia, 
you'll see that there's all kinds of ways in which, like, I don't know, sometimes it still sounds pretty European <laughs> or like uh, when Pope Francis talks about Europe, uh, even in the context of the EU or, or that sort of thing, um, he'll often emphasize the, the centrality of Europe and so on. So all that to say, like, Elok could quit. He could drop out, right? He could say, well, this is just a hopelessly Eurocentric tradition. Um, but instead, he digs in his heels and he's like, no, I'm going to think about this as a person who works with peasants in northern Africa, who works with people who are farming millet and so on. And I'm going to try to think through, like, is this really the contribution to a truly universal church? Is that the only way to really make it universal is to account for that particular? I think that's a huge piece of, like, imagining a kind of anti-imperialist Christianity. Yeah, definitely. You know, um, at 49 minutes into a podcast or 50 minutes into it, I don't know how this will turn out in the end, but uh, it is striking me that, um, I don't know, there's just a really cool deconstructive moment, I think, in in the essay that we read here that like, um, well, okay, so deconstruction, not in like the Christian sense, uh, but <laughs> not in the evangelical sense, but in like the Jacques Derrida sense. What I'm trying to get at here, though, is that, like, you know, the idea of universal, uh, you know, meaning like sort of an enforced norm for all people, um, you know, a set standard that everyone abides by. It flips into some it it flips into like, you know, almost its opposite. Right. Like it's uh, it goes from universal to like uh, a universal, but in in the sense of like picking up all of these particulars and kind of paying attention to um, uh, the universal differences in people. So it kind of goes from, you know, one to the other. And I think that's a pretty cool thing. Um, another, I guess, a, a really radical thing, though, to do, because um, it does flip the whole sort of idea on its head. And uh, listen, I, I um, this past week on Twitter, a bunch of, like, uh, very grumpy Anglicans got very up in arms about whether or not you should say the creed. And, like, they were at each other's throats. <laughs> so I can only imagine how controversial, you know, just messing with the Eucharist would be <laughs> in, in uh, the Catholic Church. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the thing, though, right? It's like, uh, how much are we willing to wade into that mess? And when we do, what do, what do we find? Uh, I think that's the, the thing that Ella is trying to provoke, like whether somebody, you know, agrees with that or not. I think you have to really deal with the fact that, uh, like he says, what are you supposed to say to a millet farmer who's like, why can't we just use the stuff that we farm? <laughs> like, you know, you can you can say it's got to be bread. You can say it has to be glutinous bread for sure. Uh, but you have to come up with an answer to that millet farmer at the end of the day, because it's, you know, that's the person who's going to receive it on the other end. It's not just a, a person in Europe or the Mediterranean or something. And I think that's huge. Uh, you know, we've talked about the dangers of universality in the podcast several times. Um Marika Rose talked about it a bit. Um, we did an episode with Amoria like a million years ago, kind of talking about it. And I think that is a huge problem, right? In uh, that classic verse in Galatians, there's no Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, male nor female, because you're all one through Jesus Christ. It's like a, the favorite of progressives. But that last little bit there, through Jesus Christ, is always the kicker, right? Uh, what happens if you're not through Jesus Christ? What happens if you didn't pass through that gate? Um, is the universal accessible to you or does that kind of actually leave you outside of it? And I think those are all really important questions to keep on asking and figure out how Christianity, you know, does universality in, in bad ways. But uh, I think what Elah does at least is to say, if we're going to say that there's a Catholic Christianity, a universal Christianity, then yeah, as you said, Matt, it's it's going to require also flipping into the opposite to say, well, what what would that really mean to take a, account of like the particulars? Because Christianity is not reducible to Europe, or at least it shouldn't be. And so, uh, what are the other pathways kind of left undone by Christian history? Yeah, definitely. Well, okay. Now that we're at the end of the conversation here, we I think I think we've pretty sufficiently talked about this essay. Uh, I don't know what is it we take away from it. I'm not really sure. Um, I, I guess to me, you know, reading this, I mean, it's interesting kind of as like a, a window into like a sort of different Christianity. And I think that's all always very neat. Um, but as a window into a different type of Christianity, I guess it always it, it kind of functions like a little bit of like a, I don't know, like an intellectual sieve where I'm, I can, you know, suddenly see some things that I thought were, uh, you know, very essential to Christianity and uh, see how they might not be or how, you know, those those essentials end up being kind of uh, big problems if you think about the world uh, through an anti-imperialist lens, I, I guess. I don't know. What's your big takeaway, Dean? Yeah, no, I think that's 
that's the same for me, at least, is trying to figure out how to destabilize what we take to be universal about Christianity when it's, in fact, a uh, a reification of a of a particularity, right? A contingent thing. It's it's making something that's not absolute absolute. And that's like a cultural trapping that we use over and over again. Um, and if that's the decision that we're making, uh, could we entertain other decisions? I mean, whatever. I'm not like a person at the seat of the table of bishops talking about liturgical reform or like priestly theology or sacramental theology or all that kind of thing, right? Just a, a guy in a podcast thinking about how to be a Catholic. The most dangerous guy in the room. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, but I think, uh, well, maybe uh, I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll help us close out with a good line from Eli. This is what I'm taking all away right. from it. Um, Eli says, uh, without a deep commitment to its calling, the church cannot accomplish its mission of salvation in an Africa in quest of life, where human beings are delivered over to unheard of sufferings, despair, and slow death by fire, the church should make the voice of the gospel heard out of respect for human beings, no matter what their condition and no matter what their convictions. The church must proclaim the Christian message as a challenge to domination in black Africa. Liberation from oppression must become the locus of our rediscovery of the gospel nature of the church for the church is an integral part of the community known as the damned of the earth. I think, I guess that's where I would take it, right? <laughs> How do we make liberation from oppression? The locus of our rediscovery of the gospel. Uh, that's what I'm trying to sort out. Maybe, maybe Eli gets us a little bit further down that path. Thanks for listening to Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Um, if you subscribe, you get cool things like uh, access to our behind the paywall podcast called The Lock In, where we've created a fictitious universe where Dean and I are youth pastors and we uh, do lots of goofy things. It's great. Um, also, you can get an invite to our Discord server, where I think uh, that's where the real value lies. Um, right now, we're doing a little bit of a book club and we're reading uh, a book called Degrowth is the Future. And uh, it's been really fun. So I don't know. Jump in, talk to us, don't talk to us. It's up to you. Our intro music is by Amari Armstrong, and our outro music is by The Illogical Spoon. We'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up you Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, keep your hoods up Well, you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early, at least I would have.